Hello everyone, welcome to episode 346 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre and I'm really excited today because it's my co-host's launch day. Everyone, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Fire Star. And the crowd Out goes today. wild. Wild, wild. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is, remember, I, I, I think I talked last week about the anticlimax of launch day, but there, how could this be anticlimactic when here we are on the day talking about stuff, the fire star is champagne. on the shelves. Pardon? We need to pop champagne, but we weren't organised enough. No, but, you know, like I also, to be perfectly frank with you, I don't think that our listeners need to hear us after we've had a couple of glasses <laughs> of champagne. I think okay. the general levels of hysteria might be a little bit too much for them to take and you haven't heard Val giggle until you've heard Val on a glass of champagne. And it only takes one. I just want to put that out, you know, it takes one. However, I am very, uh, you know, it's not a fair to middling day today. Although, um, it, you know, it's kind of anticlimactic but it's still exciting because, you know, it's definitely it's, not a fair to middling there. day. It's on the shelves. If you yes. see it anywhere, if you are still able to go out and about, oh, if yes. you are in, in your local bookshop, please, yep. please, please, please take a photo of it in the wild and then tag me on um, and share it on social media. Tag me on, you know, Facebook, Instagram or awesome. Twitter because the only way I can get excited about the fact that it's out in the wild is to see it in the wild because otherwise it's just yes. like, yeah. You don't, it's, it's like, I don't know, you wait for the other shoe to drop. It's that. Anyway. Yes. I'm going to be taking photos in the wild every place I go. Excellent. Because I can't be walk past a bookshop without going in. No, that's right. Well, yeah. you have to. It's yeah. actually, it's, I think it's a rule. I think there's a, a <laughs> hidden law there that says if you walk past a bookshop, you must enter. Yes. But it is through you, the result is varying levels of um, immense satisfaction or minor disappointment sometimes depending on the bookshop. But, you know, no, the, my, my closest one is, uh, you know, always very rewarding because they, they've got an incredibly good curation methodology I can only assume because you always discover something new it's that process of discovery in a bookshop that's so um, I know that's what you crave and also if you can like the thing is like some of us you know even in Australia I know internationally can't at the moment go to bookshops because of the Mm. various lockdown laws and the various things that are going on with the pandemic so I just feel like you know if you if you can still walk to your bookshop and browse Mm. and and buy a book, you know, the Firestar, which is out today, um, mm. then, you know, take advantage of that. Let's keep our bookshops Absolutely. going and let's let's mm. just immerse ourselves in that while we can. That's my thinking anyway. Yeah, absolutely. But even very selfishly, regardless of keeping the bookshops going, which of course is a wonderful (laughs) thing to do, very selfishly, what you get out of that process of discovery is, I believe, part of the creative process because so many ideas start firing when you're surrounded with so many different types of things. Um, That's right. That's good for the soul of any writer. But yes, congratulations to Al. So excited. The Firestar is out today and I know it's going to be a huge success because it's such an awesome book. 
Such an awesome book. Hooray! Hooray! (laughs) Now, we want to give a big shout-out to Lynn Tweed from Australia who has kindly left us a review on Apple Podcasts. And Lynn has said, thank you, Val and Al. I just love listening to you on my way to work every day. I've done a couple of courses with the Australian Writers' Centre and every time I listen to your podcast, I am more inspired to write. There are so many things I hear that I need to write down, but writing while driving is illegal, so I have to listen (laughs) again. (laughs) When I get home, thank you for brightening up my day. Ah, awesome, Lynn. Thank you so much. Thanks for brightening up our day, Lynn, because, you know, that's so nice to hear. And, um, yeah, I I had to laugh at the idea of you, like, wanting to write stuff and having to drive and it's very (laughs) difficult. But, yeah, I'm glad that you do control yourself because I would hate for you to get into trouble because you're writing something down. Mm-mm. Um, thank you, Lynn. And if uh, anyone else has 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you listen to, um, we'd really be grateful because it helps us in the rankings. It does. Right, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing. We have a really interesting blog post by Nicole Hayes, who is a fantastic author, a uh, Melbourne-based author and also a presenter at the Australian Writers' Centre. So she's written this on the Australian Writers' Centre blog and it is um, writing across the ages from junior fiction to young adult. And I think that this is really interesting because she writes um, for young adults. She has written, um, you know, the fabulous books, um, Shadow's breath one true thing the whole of my world and more recently so that's that's young adult right and but more recently she's written a junior fiction series with uh adrian beck the author adrian beck um called little legends because for for those of you who don't know nicole hayes is obsessed Obsessed. With AFL. She is one of the um, group of women who do the very successful Outer Sanctum podcast, which is Mm. the podcast uh, all about AFL. (laughs) And um, uh, so she's obviously well placed to write a junior fiction series called Little Legends, which is uh, set in the world of AFL. Right, um, but she is used to, and for those of you who have listened to our, podca- our podcast, her usual oeuvre. <laughs> Do you like the use of that word? Ooh, look at you go! <laughs> I feel like I'm in a very sophisticated environment all of a sudden, which is not where we usually find ourselves. But okay, keep going. Yes. I'm sitting um, up straighter. <laughs> is is young adult, which is a slightly older age group. Um, uh, but junior fiction is readers five to nine, maybe to 12, depending on, you know, where you're at as a reader. Um, so it's a completely different uh, age, age group, obviously. And mm. so you need to think about things in a slightly different way and choose, and the things you choose to write about are slightly different as well, because the readers at our different developmental stage of their lives. So mm. it is interesting for those people who Cross age groups, don't you think, Al? Well, it is, and it's actually it's actually not that easy to do. Like it's mm. the kind of thing that um, it, it's actually not that easy to do. It's the kind of thing that you really need to, if you're going to branch yourself out into a whole different sort of section of the bookshelf, you, you really have to, you can't, it obviously all comes down to the fundamentals of writing. Like it comes down to all the things that every story needs to have, you know, story, idea, setting, language, character, voice, structure, all of those things. 
but you need to understand the differences between those things. And to do that, you really have to read your way through what is currently being published um, in junior fiction. Because yeah. um, one thing that I find when I'm sort of like looking at these different ideas for stories and how things might work and where is this particular story going to work on the bookshelf and all of that kind of stuff is junior fiction is really short, like generally tends mm. to be short. Um, the word the word count is short. Um, the there's a there's a very there's often illustrations in a junior fiction uh, yeah. book. Like you're you're leaving space for for, for illustrative work, um, and it's not easy to tell a full story in. 2,000, 4,000, 6,000, it's not easy to do that in, in such a short space of time, particularly mm. when, like Nicole, you're used to writing 70,000 words, yeah. you're used to talking to a quite worldly audience, um, you don't really have to hold back too much on the kind of subject matter that you touch on, like the kind of language that you use. You mm. can kind of go anywhere. You can go really dark with a with a, a YA novel. You mm. can't really do that with junior fiction. Junior fiction no. tends to be pushed along by humour more more so than than most things. Um, so it's not that easy, and it is something that it, it requires research. Research and it requires mm. a reassessment of how you're going to tell a story. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Then the way in which you tell it. So there's if you're starting really at the developmental stage of a reader, you really start at picture books where you're, they're often being read to the the, the the young child is being mm. read the book by their parent or grandparent or teacher or whatever, and that's picture mm-hmm. books, right? And, mm. and and for those of you who are interested in that, there's a course in writing picture books that we have. But then there's junior fiction, which is um, readers who are five to nine and they're starting to read a bit themselves. And that's like yeah. um, they're, they're chapter books. So uh, do check out our course if you're interested in that age group called Writing Chapter Books with Leslie Gibbs. But then when once they progress beyond that, there's the age group that Alison or A.L. Tate particularly writes for, which is middle grade. And no surprise to everyone, there will soon be a course by A.L. Tate on middle grade. <laughs> <laughs> you're just keeping me accountable there, aren't you? <laughs> but after – and that's kind of like aged – 12 to, I mean, 9 to 12, 13, depending yeah, on, 9 to you 12 know, or 13, yeah. Depending on the reader. And then young adult is kind of like 13 plus. Um, but, of mm. course, there's those who are at the lower end of young adult and they're the higher end of young adult. So there's a yeah. bit of variation because, you know, what a 17-year-old does gets up to is quite different to what a 13-year-old gets up to. So mm. um, uh, if you're interested in that, there's a course in writing books for children and young adults. Uh, but they, they each have their own special nuances and special framework that you need to be aware of if you want to write for that age group. But you can, as Nicole Hayes obviously has just done, cross over. And, yeah, and that can. would be a wise thing to do because often you may start with the kids in the uh, junior fiction um, series with your books, but as they grow up, you may take them along to the next level and the next level so that they can follow along with you um, as they, you know, age. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, like the the post that uh, Nicole's written here is some of the things that she's like learned as she has, you know, turned her yeah. thoughts to junior fiction, and you know how to decide where your story fits, like the kind mm. of story that you're writing, like what are the main preoccupations? Because as she points out, when you're writing 
what it doesn't really matter what you're writing as with, across all of these various you know sections of the bookshelf it's all about the reader where's your reader up to what are their preoccupations you know in this junior fiction area you know their worlds are fairly small like it's school mm. and pets and home and um and all of that kind of stuff and then as you go through middle grade it's opening up things are opening up for them they're starting to think about bigger pictures and then by the time you get to YA they're living the bigger picture half yeah. of them um so it's kind of like you know you have to always be writing with that reader in mind um and as you say like when you're dealing with junior fiction when you're dealing with chapter books you are dealing with you know beginner readers so you've really Mm. got to think about your language choices and you've really got to think about um what sorts of uh you know it's it's you know you're not going to be using oeuvre for example (laughs) you know in a let me just throw that out there. See how I can do it too. Um, in a um, in a junior fiction book, you've got to think about the levels of reading. Um, you don't have to. I don't think like it's again very important to always be bearing in mind that you're not dumbing down a story for these kids. Mm. You're just writing it in such a way that they can read it themselves. It's yes. not dumbing down. Yes. Um, and you want to basically, you really want to avoid, like the voice is so important, um, mm. so, so important. It doesn't matter, again, where you're writing for kids. The voice is really important, but mm. it's different it's different for different things. Um, so junior fiction is often funny. There's often a lot of humour involved in it. There's often pay, the story will move along at quite a pace, even even in the 2,000 words or the 6,000 words, there's a lot of stuff happening because you're trying to keep the interest of someone who is just starting out as a reader. So this is not someone who wants to immerse themselves in the beauty of your description. They mm. don't. They just want to know it was a tree. And they want to know how they get up it. Um, it's that kind of stuff. I had this whole conversation on Twitter yesterday about, you know, story structure in the treehouse books and someone who'd got in trouble because, you know, I, my my thing with kids is that you always want to start with the action. You want to start yeah. where the action starts. Whereas your classic story structure, story mountain structure that kids mm. are taught in schools, there's an intro and then there's rising action yes. and, and all this kind of stuff. And apparently someone had got in trouble because they had started their kid you know, halfway up with the rising action, um, which is where, you know, where I say, but, you know, like I'm not, you don't start halfway up the mountain, but you got to start at the bottom of it. Um, you got to be at the tree. Like don't wake mm. up in the morning thinking about climbing a tree, yes, walking right. to the tree, considering the tree, and then at the tree. We're going to mm. start at the bottom of the tree. Like we're there, we're looking up, we're ready to go. Like it's 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 those sorts of things that you need to think about when you're right, particularly when you've got such a restrictive word count, and they yes. do have restrictive word counts. So, you know, all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, uh, well, well, you know, we, I could talk about this for days, but yes. then, like, there's a lot of people that are not writing junior fiction and don't care. So I don't want to bore them <laughs> senseless on this, my launch day. <laughs> so let's move on to our competition uh, this week. We have um, three copies of The Good Teacher by Petronella McGovern to Woo-hoo. give away. Now, we spoke to Petronella in episode 295, so you can um, have a listen to her writing process there. Uh, but this is her second book. And, of course, Petronella is uh, alumni of the Australian Writer Centre and her first novel was very, very popular and it was the thriller Six Minutes. This one is The Good Teacher. 
Every evening, Alison watches her husband's new house, desperate to find some answers. Every morning, she puts on a brave face to teach kindergarten. She's a good teacher, everyone says so. This stalking is just a tiny crack in her usual self-control. A late enrolment to her class brings little Gracie sick and grieving. Alison takes the girl and her father, Luke, under her wing. She smothers Gracie with a love she can't give her own son. As others question her judgment and the police arrive at her door, Alison starts to wonder if she can trust herself. How far will the good teacher go to save a life? And whose life will that be? An intriguing tale of our times about kindness and betrayal and the danger of good deeds. Oh, mm. intriguing. It is intriguing. intriguing. Do you think she? Do you think she's named her main character after yeah. me? Yeah, it's even the same spelling has. and everything. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I reckon she's. <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon she's been listening to the podcast and that's she's right. been like, "That is a great name for a character." Because she knows that actually you're a stalker. Yes, that's somewhere right. in my mind. <laughs> yeah, somewhere deep in my heart and my life, I have. Well, I. You know what? I think it's like everything. I think everyone could, like, depending on the circumstances, anyone could be a stalker. You never Not saying know. I've ever done it. I'm just mm. saying you don't know what's going to tip you over the edge, do you? <laughs> That's right. All right, so um, we have three copies to give away for your chance to win one of three copies of The Good Teacher by Petronella McGovern. Go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. Entries close the 7th of September. That's writerscentre.com.au slash win. But for now, Al, are mm-hmm. you ready for the word of the week? <sighs> Only if it's... You know, super best-selling author. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, well, it's not. So. What? <laughs> Shocking. The word of the week is hermeneutics. That's H-E-R. Yeah, that's really <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, that's H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. Hermeneutics. Do you know what that means? I don't. I really don't. So it sounds like it's some kind of pharmaceutical, but it's not. It refers to the science of interpretation. Mm. Mm. In fact, Mm. it could be said that we all practice some form of hermeneutics every day in that we're always interpreting body language or symbols and so on, right? Uh, Mm. But it comes from the ancient Greek hermeneus, meaning translator or interpreter hermeneutics there you go and that was the word of the week this podcast is brought to you by the australian writers center and our course freelance writing stage one if you'd like to be a freelance writer our five-week online course is the fastest way to get there step by step you'll explore how to get story ideas approach editors research and structure your article plus learn about interview skills industry expectations and much more and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Here's what Joe Hartley says. I joined the course because I've been doing a blog and I've always enjoyed writing and I thought it would just be something fun to do as a course and maybe learn a little bit more about how I could potentially use that for a career and some income. The things I found most useful in the course was uh, learning how to pitch and that was really useful and also how to put together an article, the formula that that you use, the hooks and the transitions within the article to make it flow well and, and fit the style of the magazine. From a writing sense, it's obviously taught me the skills that I needed to be able to write in um, for magazines and for online publishing. Um, which I didn't have those skills before. In terms of um, my life, it's basically given me a part-time income that I'm able to work around my two children. So at the moment, I work three days a week, um, school hours mainly, 
and I'm writing for a number of publications. I've built good relationships across um, the board in terms of online and print publications. But doing the course was certainly the best platform to spring off of. It's an absolute must for anybody who'd like to think about writing as a career. You learn all the skills you need to break into the industry, but then also to produce work that's quality enough that you can keep producing it and, and the editors come back for more. Give it a go, you can make it success and the rest is down to you. If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash freelance writing. All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. We had a good old chat to Nick Place, who is the co-author of the book Stalin's Wine Cellar, uh, which is a fascinating true story and um, Nick has done a great job in conveying it. So Nick has a long CV in journalism and the media. He's been everything from a sports reporter to a television writer and producer. He's written long-form non-fiction books as well as four fantasy comedy novels for preteens. And uh, this book is a collaboration with John Baker, Stalin's Wine Cellar. Let's have a listen to Nick Place. Thanks so much for joining us today, Nick. Oh, I'm really thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. This is such an interesting idea for a book. Stalin's Wine Cellar, stolen from the Tsar, hidden from Hitler and found by a Sydney wine merchant. Now, you've written this. There's, it's, it says by John Baker and Nick Place. First of all, before we get into that collaboration, uh, tell, for those readers who haven't read the book yet, tell us what it's about. It is a pretty amazing story. It's um, mostly a true story. I had a little bit of license to play with it. It's The story is that in the late 90s, John Baker, my co-author, was running the Double Bay Cellar in Sydney. And he used to, he developed a thing where people would sell their cellars and I, I don't know, someone in the Hunter Valley might die and the, the Someone would ring up and say, look, my father's died. He's got an enormous cellar. He's been collecting French wines for years. Do you want to come and have a look at buying the whole cellar? So John had a part of his business was to go out and go, oh, wow, there actually are a whole bunch of French classics here and this would be worth quite a bit of money. So I'll pay for the cellar and I'll go and sort of auction the cellar off. That was part of his business. Uh, and then he got an invitation to basically look at a list which he wasn't even sure was a wine list that had all these all these names he couldn't quite work out. And instead of being sort of, you know, for him, a, an antique kind of wine was 1960 or 1970 or something. But these ones kind of look like they were 1830s and 1860s mm. and through sort of right through to kind of 1900, 1910. So he was really intrigued. And he finally worked out that actually these weird words he couldn't work out were if someone had phonetically tried to say wine labels. And at that point, he, he went back and pieced through it and worked out they were like the greatest French wines in the world. Uh, so the long story short is that this seller allegedly was sitting in Tbilisi, Georgia in a little known winery and had something like 40,000 bottles of incredible wines that a lot of French chateaus wouldn't have that kind of collection of their old wines. And it was actually Nicholas II, the last hour of Russia's wine collection that had become Stalin's wine collection after the Russian Revolution and after Lenin passed away. So John had a decision. Was this real? Was mm. this a huge con? Should they go to Tbilisi and see if this thing was real? It's it's kind of a Raiders of the Lost Ark of wine. Um, and, you know, mostly actually happened back in the late 90s. 
that's it's it, I mean it's just truth is stranger than fiction isn't it um so this is actually a story as you said about John Baker and his sort of partner in crime or well, not crime but you know his 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 <laughs> associate Kevin Hopko how yep. did you become involved John in has process? Yeah, John had been sitting on the story for 20 years. Of course, it's his classic dinner party conversation. That mm. time we went to Tbilisi and, um, you know, people loved the story. He just always got a great response to the story. And I think friends of his, possibly a film director friend of his, I'm not really sure, had sort of said, you've just got to get this book written. You've got to write the book. And John had had a, had a go at doing it. But he's he's a businessman. He's now in his 70s. He um. He just had tried to write the book and realised he probably couldn't write a book. So he, one way or another, ended up at the Cameron Creswell agency saying, would you have anyone who could help me write this book? And uh, little old me was sitting on their on their books as a gainfully unemployed writer at the time who could dive into it. But actually, um, actually, you know, I've, I've been a journalist my whole career for like 35 years or so, and I've written five novels, kids' novels, detective novels, things like that, and quite a bit of nonfiction. So actually my CV really matched up as someone who is, A, a generalist. I've covered everything from Wimbledon and world title fights and police rounds and murder scenes and neuroscience and magic and all sorts of stuff. So I think they thought, you know, Nick's the kind of guy who could get his head around this crazy story mm. and bring it bring it to life with his kind of fiction novelist kind of sensibilities. And, you know, it was a great challenge for me. I mean, how much fun is that? Mm. So uh, what I'm hearing is that your agent then basically said, hey, here's this idea. What happened next? Because I am assuming you didn't just say yes on, you know, an email. Like what happened next before you ended up deciding, yeah, I could get my teeth into this. I could tell a good story. Hmm. Well, I don't mean to uh, I don't mean to take the podcast to a black place, but actually, my my father died on the Friday, mm. and on the next Thursday, six days later, I was sitting in a cafe. That's in in on the coast in Victoria. Six mm. days later, I was in Sydney, sitting at a cafe with John, meeting him for the first time, mm. and a senior publisher from Penguin and my agent Jean, and um, John basically, who's a fairly he's an interesting character. He's a good businessman. He's very can sort of really get to the point of things. And I had him saying to me, Nick, with all due respect, why would they get you to write this story? Do you know about French wine? Are you um, are you an expert in Russian history? Are you? Why would they? I've tried writing reading your detective novel, and it didn't really work for me. I only got about thirty pages in. So, why would they get you to write it? <laughs> so that was my intro to John. And I, right? I uh, I guess I was in a mood because of what was going on in my personal life, where I was like, John, it's it's not terrifying me yet. It's a story about a winery. It's I've written plenty of other stuff, and basically, you know, it sounds interesting, but I'm not terrified by the concept. And we sort of had this funny push and fro, but then actually we got on famously. Like I think he just needed to know that I was someone who could kind of look him in the eye. And once he worked out I could, then we actually have become really good friends and yes. had a great time telling the story. It was a weird thing for him too. I mean, he had to choose me as much as I had to choose to be involved. Um, yes. You know, it's a hard thing for him to have someone tell his story and he's never written a book. He's carried this story around for 20 years. I made it very clear very early that I was probably going to muck around with the story. There's this whole, we can get to that, but there's whole parts of it that I needed to flesh out. Um, mm. And I said to him, look, John, you're, you're kind of going to become a semi-fictional character and I'm going to be in charge of that. So... You know, we had to have a few really full and frank discussions to to just understand where we were both coming from. But luckily, I wrote one chapter. I sort of had a little section of the story, and I wrote that 
And Penguin looked at it. He looked at it. We all looked at it and actually said, wow, actually, it's cool. This is going to be good. We all sort of agreed that it would work. And I think for John, that was a big moment. He went, oh, actually, Nick can do things that I can't do in terms of writing a story. So we both sort of started to relax in each other's company and get on with it. But it was fun. Mm. It was a funny way to get to get acquainted, you know. Yes, but before you threw yourself, before you wrote that that first chapter or that 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 sample, just take me back a bit because, as you said, it. I mean, you said it doesn't terrify me, but there's mm. a difference between it doesn't terrify me and hey, I'm really keen to get stuck into it. <laughs> what was the thing that made you want to do it? It can't just be that it didn't terrify you. No, that that's true. That's a really good point, and I think I did say it doesn't terrify me. So you're right on it. <laughs> um, well, it was a good challenge for me, actually. I've written nonfiction. I've written. I, I wrote a twenty thousand word um, introductory chapter to a book that I did with a friend about fifty years of Australian TV, and I really enjoyed writing a sort of crazily extended nonfiction piece. I mean, as a journalist, you you write a lot of five hundred words or a thousand yes. words, or as a feature writer, you might get out to three or four thousand words. But it's very rare you get beyond that. So writing twenty thousand, which I've done a few times now, I really liked, and I think. Just the idea of, you know, this story existed. It is an amazing story. Mm. The idea of kind of not like my detective novels and my other my novels where I have to come up with the plot and I have to create the characters, it sort of attracted me, the idea of taking reality and trying to actually turn that into a, a page turner of a book. I mean, mm. I think from day one I thought this is going to be <laughs> tragically given the pandemic, I thought this is going to be an airport book. This is a book you should pick up and read on a plane and love that it was a perfect airplane book. Mm. Um, so I made it a page turner. There's all sorts of history and stuff in there that I decided to add that again, you know, we, I said to John, I think we need to have these sort of, I call them billabongs, little side bits about who was yes. Stalin, who mm. was Nicholas II, things like that. That was all sort of my idea to add those little history sections. But you know, I never wanted them to be history sections. I didn't want them to be some academia. I wanted it. I wanted it to be very readable. Mm. So that was and, my that was my challenge, which really attracted me. And so you decide, okay, it's a challenge, and I want to give it a go. How then, on a practical level, did you go about? Can you describe how you went about downloading the information from John from from twenty however many years ago? Yeah, luckily I had a head start because he had tried to write the book. So mm. he he tried to write it and got maybe a chapter in and it was very stiff and he just realised he wasn't a writer. But he had put some information down. And then a friend had very wisely said to him, John, just dictate it into a dictaphone, just tell the story, like you would tell it at a dinner party and just tell everything you can remember about it. And so John had done that and he'd actually, he's got all the correspondence, he's actually got you know, printouts. He's a very meticulous guy who has kept all the records. So he um he went through all those, flicking through, going, oh, okay, here's an email from George in Tbilisi and, you know, he's saying this and I think that my reply to him was that. And he kind of had that. So I had, in the end, we had 70 pages of kind of his dictated thoughts on what happened and what was happening then. And I was probably trying to do this when I said that and just his kind of talking us through it. So that that became very much the spine of what, what we had ah. to go on. Okay, so you have your 70 pages, but obviously you need to, you know, flesh it out and get a lot more information, accuracy, colour and all of that. What then happened? Did you, you know, what I'm asking is did you then meet on a regular basis to nut it all out or what happened to for, between you and John to then yeah. make it into this book? 
Yeah, no, actually, we we didn't. It's um, you know, I've always wondered what it, I've, I had ghostwritten one other book and had a lot of contact with that person, but mm. on this one, John was kind of like, "There's the story. I've told you everything you need to know." So mm. I don't know what else I've got to offer. He was completely available and happy to help, but mm. he didn't really know what else he could offer me. Um, I went up to his place. He actually lives up the back of Bowral in New South Wales, and mm. Kevin actually picked me up at the airport. I'd never met Kevin. I'd only read 70 pages about him and Kevin. So it was funny that Kevin picked me up and drove me the hour and a half or whatever down to Barrel. So we kind of bonded. And then we actually had a weekend where um, I think that was on a Friday and on the Sunday, Kevin dropped me back to Sydney or might've even been on Saturday night. I can't remember. Um, But I stayed the night and we all had dinner and, you know, basically John and John showed me all of his stuff. Like here's all those documents that I talked about. Here they all are. Here's my photos. Here's everything. And then we had dinner where of course I was able to really pick their brains about everything. But look, to be honest, they were great. I mean, they're both, and Kevin's been fantastic too. He He hasn't got any official involvement in the book, but he's thought it's a great adventure and he's really enjoyed the fact it's happening. And we've actually become, um, quite close as well. So I've had that amazing resource of both of them to call on, but I, I did decide quite early, okay, I do have your takes on it now. Now I'm going to go and turn it into a book and I'm going to take quite a few liberties on that front. And when I say liberties, all I'm talking about is John, was, John's, like I said, they were there on business. When they went to Tbilisi, they were very much like, are these bottles real? Are we being played? Are we, you know, what's the price? Mm-hmm. They were very much in doing a deal mode. So when we sat around for dinner and I said, tell me about Tbilisi, John was like, uh, you know, it was just kind of like any other city, I guess. And Kevin was sort of, I remember there was quite a few old buildings that looked like they'd seen better days. And that was kind of their entire description of Tbilisi. So clearly I had to to go and do some work to, uh, and I I said, I'm, I'm fine with that. I get it. You guys weren't tourists. You were, you were there on a job. Um, But I had to go and kind of, you know, flesh out Tbilisi and flesh out you know, what is it, what is it like to, if sitting in a cafe in Tbilisi where, where scenes happen, where there's a conversation, what is that cafe? What does it look like? What food would you be eating? What sort of people would be around? You know, can you see the river? Mm. There's, as the novelist in me kicked in and went, okay, there's a heap of questions here to make this live, live and breathe for the reader. So how did you do that? How did you figure out what it was like in the late 90s for a cafe in Tbilisi (laughs) and who was around and what the river looked like? How did you do that? (laughs) I'm still not terrified yet, Valerie. (laughs) I had a lot of fun, actually. I... um... I dug around. I found, I mean, I turned back into a journalist. That's what's kind of funny for me. I'm a journalist mm-hmm. and a novelist at the same time. So I I completely turned back into a journalist and I hunted and I found people who've been to Tbilisi. And I've I found even a, a book, which was a miracle, thanks to my ex-sister-in-law, had a book about Georgian cooking that happened to have come out in 1999 oh. and happened to have basically an entire section at the front, which is like all about what's it like in Tbilisi and what's it like in Georgia <laughs> and you know, it just was this incredible find. Um, so, you know, there was things like that. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of stuff online, but I'm very careful mm. using online resources. I, um, you know, the entire book, I was never going to use Wikipedia as my source. Mm. Um, I had to use sort of three or four or five sources and get things backed up. And I was trying to use official kind of encyclopedias where I could. And, you know, there's it's great now. You can do a lot of research online. And, you know, Google Image Library has a lot of pictures of Tbilisi, for example. But trying to trying to date Tbilisi back to then was a real challenge. Absolutely. It was it was crazy. But yes, yeah, I, was lucky. I had a few wins. 
So apart from, you know, Tbilisi in the in the 90s, and that's great that you were able to get that resource from your ex-sister-in-law, but as you've mentioned, there are you, what you refer to as billabongs in this book where you do have these breakout sections that are the history of Russia or Nicholas, um, you know, the Tsar. How did you um, decide what needed to be in a billabong And how did you decide where the billabongs needed to occur? Mm. Yeah, good question. So, look, I just, I took the view. I mean, yeah, I I hit this story fresh, right? It wasn't my story. I was was writing it, you know, as a job, really, to um, help John out. So, you know... I didn't claim to be an expert on on Joseph Stalin or Nicholas II or St. Petersburg or Shadow de Kem, which is like pretty much a character in the book. Um, that's one of the great, great French wines. And it, it pretty much, I, I treated that like a character, just like I would, you know, mm. the, the lead kind of negotiator in, in Georgia. Um, so in my head, these were all characters. And I just kind of thought, you know, I can't assume that a reader knows the story of Stalin. And I need to, at some point, kind of flesh that stuff out. But I didn't want to sort of have John and Kevin walking down the street into Bussy and suddenly I go into a five-page ramble about the history of St. Petersburg. It just Exposition. Wasn't... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, imagine. It would be terrible. Um, yes. And, you know, I worked out pretty quickly. I wasn't going to have them talk about it. John, mm. did you know that St. Petersburg was founded in, you know, like that was never going <laughs> to <laughs> yes. So I thought, if in doubt, be honest with the reader. Just say, hey, if you want to know a bit about St. Petersburg, here's here's a couple of pages that will kind of give you a – and again, I tried to approach it in a very mm. chatty dinner party conversation mm. way. Um, and happily, John has had a couple of friends of his who are really learned people who know a lot about Russia and have studied Russia a lot who have now said, that's some of the most concise, readable, accurate, like – you know, beautifully written histories of Russia I've ever seen, which is hilarious because it was me digesting a whole bunch of sources and then thinking I'm going to walk around with that for a good few days before I try and regurgitate it. I'm just going to think about what I've read and all those different accounts of it and then I'm going to basically tell it like I would at a dinner party um, what's interesting about this. And so that's kind of how I did them. In terms of where to put them, that was was tricky sometimes because there were – it, it was there was places that say the Shadow de Kem one could have gone in several spots. Um, you know, we had a few people involved. It wasn't just me. John had a say in that. There was an editor involved later in the piece. A few of them moved around, but hmm. I kind of I kind of found this slots. They they actually sat pretty comfortably where they sat, so that wasn't too big a debate. Mm. So um, it uh, they are as you say. It was a strategic decision from the outset on on telling it in this way as opposed to working it out through some kind of exposition. And it what you've done is you've written this, obviously, um, even though I don't know John, I'm assuming you've written it in John's voice. And even though I don't know John to, as to know whether it is John's voice, it seems very consistent and very authentic and believable. What did you do to capture that yeah i listened to him i just i I actually love dialogue and in all my books i love dialogue and i love Mm. the way people talk and i love mannerisms and i think that that can really um flesh out a book whether you're talking about a a book like this or a or a novel um you know it's interesting what you said about making those decisions i mean to me writing is 
to write a good novel or a good book, there's a lot of decisions. You have to make decisions. You don't just let it happen. You don't just mm. drift along and write and see what happens. You make decisions. Um, and, you know, everything we've been talking about really have been decisions. And so, again, I, I basically just, you know, having that dinner with John and Kevin and watching their interaction was huge for me. It only took that one dinner. Um, mm. I just needed to see them spend some time together and they don't even work together anymore. They only see each other every now and then. Mm. It's years since they work together, but they have an old furniture way of dealing with each other and they yeah. they kind of have in jokes and they have ways that they will talk to one another and you know John's still the boss and Kevin works for him even though that's not the case and hasn't been for years and mm. there's I, I you know that's where the novelist in me was watching 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 and I kind of then try to bring that back out um I didn't always get it right by the way I'm not trying to claim I'm a genius at this um you know what happened after I'd written the draft is that John then stepped back in and read the draft and mm. said, I would never say that. That's not me. I would never say that. And he got to basically go through and edit the way. And, you know, I would have things like one one example that really sticks to mind is at one point I had him saying, mate, I'm not here for a dick swinging contest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you met John, he's right. He would never say that. He's just sure. much too genteel and old school. And he wouldn't, he might say something similar, but very direct, but he wouldn't say that. That's a that's a Nick Place kind of stupid thing to say to someone. Um, and so, you know, he was straight on to that. I would never say that in a meeting. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, and, you know, the other thing too is that there's characters in there who are real people. And, again, for me, they're characters on a page because I've never met them. I only know about them from John's kind of story and from the whole thing. So, again, I had to create a dinner in London with John and several people that are real people and I had to create this whole dinner and the whole conversation and kind of get the plot from A to B through this dinner. Mm. And then John would say to me, look, Nick, you know, that guy would never talk like that. He's an incredibly accomplished, you know, English right. scholar. He would use those words. And yeah. I, I, we would just, but it was fine. I'd say, well, John, I've, I've never met the guy. I'm just trying to make up a scene, put, put yes. words in that he would use. So, you know, yeah. between us, we got there. But, uh, yeah, it was mostly observation. Valerie, I'm one of those people who, I'm one of those writers who sits on a train or a tram or whatever <laughs> when we're allowed to and there's not a pandemic on oh, yes. and you know, sit there with my headphones on but nothing playing and listen to the people around me, um, <laughs> you know, which is a guilty secret of a lot of writers. Um, <laughs> and it's not because I care about Valerie's actually sleeping with Trevor or whatever. I couldn't care less. What oh, I'm interested damn in it, that's is, Trevor. He's a pain. No. <laughs> He's a bad one. But, yeah. um, I'm very interested in the words used and the inflections and the tone and the reactions. And, you know, I'm, I, I love that stuff and I'm often mm. shamelessly eavesdropping. And again, not, not for content, just for ways of expression. Mm. You can make it incredibly real. Tell me about um, the timeline. So you, uh, from, say, that meeting with Penguin at the initial meeting and just if you give me a really kind of overview of after that it took X amount of time before you decided to do it, you know, you got the 70 pages, you got your first draft and so on. Can you just give me a little bit of a timeline of, of the book? Uh, yeah, I can try. Um, mm. I haven't actually noted it down, so I'll have to think about it. I mean, mm. look, it's funny, you know, one of my novels took me 20 years to finish um, wow. and another one took four months. So mm -hmm. this one was different because I had a um, contract with Penguin that said I had mm. to deliver it by a certain date, <laughs> which got my full attention. Yes. Um, so it's not bad, actually, for a journalist to have a deadline. So I was like, okay, I'm delivering it on that date. Um 
So I worked towards that. In answer to your question, we met, that first meeting was in mid-October 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, By the time that we, I did that first initial chapter and we we actually got the go-ahead from Penguin who said, yeah, we like it, this is going to be good. And we did the deal and contracts and my agent did her thing and all of that stuff. That probably took us through till late February. Um, So I started writing pretty much in March 2019 and I finished actually on Christmas Day 2019, the Mm. first draft. Um, um, And hilariously then to celebrate because my wife was overseas and I was basically all by myself and I'd spent all of Christmas Day writing because I was by myself. Mm. Um, And I then thought, wow, I really need a drink. I just wrote the end on this book. And I went around to my ex-sister-in-law's place where my sons and a few other people were. And that's when she told me she had this book about Georgia and cooking and stuff. So it was hilarious. I'd finished the draft Ah. and got this piece of gold and went back (laughs) and added it in. Um, So that was Christmas Day. Um, I think we probably got second draft done by about March 2020. And Mm. then probably we had third draft and really we're getting close now and we need to have this done and by then I'm also writing some marketing material the blurb on the back things like that mm-hmm. probably about um late May I'd imagine maybe early June this year penguin right. moved, you know it's a, it's a production line putting a book together and yes. um once once penguin kind of get their manuscript and they're happy with it and off they go and they get their editor involved it actually moved pretty quickly I was incredibly lucky in that they love the manuscript because I don't know if, if other authors have talked about this on the podcast before, but, you know, you live in absolute, when I am terrified, I keep saying I'm not terrified. When I am terrified is after I've handed in the manuscript to Penguin and now I'm waiting for the judgment because it could come mm. back. You have to rewrite the entire second half and lose five characters and this doesn't work and that doesn't work and they could rip it apart because um, mm. by the time you finish a manuscript, you know, obviously you like it or you wouldn't hand it in, but, you don't really know you're in you've had such a climb Everest to get there that you really have no idea if it's any well I don't anyway I don't I don't really know if it's if it's great or not mm, so mm. happily they came back and said we love it we've only got yes. minor changes and that made the second and third draft very easy which was great relief for me yeah so from March 2019 to Christmas can you just tell us a bit about, were you writing this full time? Were you juggling another job? You know, just tell us about your situation at the time and how, and your writing routine, how you um, got the words done. Mm. Uh, no, I was, I was grieving my father for quite a while and I was, I had a new baby um, and uh, who was like born three months before that first meeting with John. Um, mm. I'd had to move house. I was I was freelancing as a journalist, which meant that I had about 15 jobs. I'm on faculty <laughs> at Melbourne Uni Centre for Advancing Journalism in charge of a capstone subject there. Mm. And then actually I got invited in to get involved in a company, which I'm now a, the creative and content director of, which kicked in um, as well and then became an absolute beast and just took all the oxygen. Um, mm. So all of that was going on while I was trying to write those words. Um and I think that what I would say to the audience is the only thing I know of writers and of all the writers I know, and I know quite a few because I've, you know, we cross paths. Um, I think the only thing we all have in common in all the wild variety of people I know who write books is that we got the book done. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it sounds really simple and it sounds like I'm 
I'm bragging, but I'm not. But actually, you just have to get it done. And mm. life never stops. I've got plenty of journo friends who tell me endlessly, oh, I've got a great book in me. I'm going to write a book one day. It's going to be great. And I'm like, write it. And they're mm. like, oh, Nick, I'm pretty busy. I'm, I've got my rounds and I've got two kids. And I'm like, mate, you either write it or you don't. That's that's the definition of a writer. And I know, yes. you know, and so in a way, I went into that mode where with everything going on and this it was pretty crazy, actually, a year and a half that I had there. Mm. Um, you know, I knew I had a deadline and I also knew that I had to get it done. So, yeah, my wife took a lot of hits. I, I would take off on a Saturday and write mm. for hours on a Saturday. Like I said, I've got a spare. Oh, I didn't say I've, I have a spare office that I keep in Fitzroy, which is just my little writing cave. Mm. So I can go there and shut the door and, and work. Uh, but there was a lot of nights. There was a lot of kind of spare days. There was a lot of you know, weekend time. It just, I just, it took up every available second. And of course the research was huge. I mean, it wasn't mm. just the writing of the words. It was actually the research. I divided the book into three sections. It, it quite naturally fitted mm. into before Georgia, Georgia, after Georgia. And I, I pretty much wrote it in that order. I didn't muck around much. I pretty much sort of was able to keep to that. And it, it sort of, it just had a really good spine to it, which helped me a lot. Mm. So on a practical level, though, you said you wrote at every available moment. Was it literally every available moment or did you kind of at least put some structure to it like on Saturdays I'm going to write and every Saturday or, you know, and or did you put some structure in terms of, okay, I've actually got a deadline so if I divide it up I need to produce X number of words per week or month or whatever. Like did you do mm. any of that? I Look, everyone has a different writing process. Um mm. Raymond Chandler used to lock himself in a room for four or five hours a day with nothing but a typewriter and a pile of paper and a desk and a chair. And if he mm -hmm. didn't write, he just had to stay in there for five hours not writing. That was his that was his technique. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I would love to be able to have a good flow and to have a good system, but actually life just gets in the way. I mean, I have a we have my stepson every second week, so that mm -hmm. dramatically affects the house if if Cassius is in the house or not. So, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I tried to get every Saturday for a while, but I also didn't want to leave my wife with a huge load of the kids and to be one of those guys who's gone the whole time. She got it that I was not off playing golf or something. I was working. But, you know, you have to balance all of those things. So I didn't I didn't have a system. I I was well aware that I wanted to stay ahead of the word count. I didn't want to hit um you know, I think I think the manuscript was due at say the end of January. And I I like January twenty twenty. And I didn't want to hit early December or late December going, oh my God, I've still got 50,000 <laughs> words to write. So I'm pretty disciplined. I was pretty disciplined about going, you need to be here, you need to be here. Um, but yeah, look, to be honest, it's a bit of a blur. I just kind of got it done amongst everything else. I mean, I was freelancing for some of that. And so I could kind of do some freelance work and then go, I'm going to actually, and look again, usually I have to get myself into a headspace to write fiction. I can't normally just drop in and out of it. But this one, yeah. for some reason, I was able to go, I've got a couple of hours. I might just have a go at trying to write some of Stalin. And I kind of would, and I'd get somewhere. The other thing with me, which again, I don't know if it's true of all, all writers, but for me, I call it catching a thermal. I can go weeks where I really don't write anything good. I try to write. I have a go. It's terrible. I think oh. it's terrible. I really struggle. And then something will click and I'll hit what I call a thermal. It's like hang gliders. You know, they catch an updraft and right. go up. And when I get a thermal, that means strap on and go. And so I can write 10, 15,000 words on a thermal very quickly. And how how long is a thermal? I never know. That's why I have to grab it <laughs> while it's there. I actually, wow. 
I had one of my kids' books years ago where I'd written 40,000 or 45,000 words and I just didn't like it and I threw the whole book out and started again. And I got 12,000 words in and I still wasn't happy and I was not in a thermal. And then suddenly something clicked at 3 a.m. and I hit a thermal and I wrote the whole book in four days. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredible. So, you know, with Stalin, I hit a few thermals where I really made good progress, um, right. you know, in a very short space of time. And I, I don't look back. I don't do anything. I just go with it. Like, this is working. I feel like mm, the characters mm. are working. I feel like they're talking to each other. I feel like going from there to there makes total sense. Just go. And yes. then when the thermal leaves me, I can go back and have a look at it and, you know, see. It's a weird look. It's a weird process. I'm not advocating it. It's it's hell. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you, you do write fiction. So did you uh, juggle writing any fiction during that year? 2019 really where you were essentially writing this book yeah I'd write, I'd, I write short stories as well which never really get published I just kind of like writing them I, again I, a tip for for writers you know if I'm if I'm giving tips to people who are working their way into being a writer a novel's really hard or a, you know I, I I use the tortured analogy that a novel is like climbing Everest you don't have to climb Everest all the time. You can climb a few foothills to keep to to work the muscles and to get good. So, you know, I've I've written an entire short story which is nothing but dialogue and just as a dialogue exercise. Um, it's actually it's, it's on my website nickplace.me if anyone wants to look at it. It's called um yeah it's called Daisy and uh, Dave and Marie I think it's called and it's nothing but dialogue and the whole point of that was just to write dialogue as a practice thing. Um, in answer to your question, yeah, I, I had a crazy idea in my head that. What if Bono decided to get involved in gun politics in America and basically <laughs> kidnapped the daughter of the NRA president and held her hostage? And so I was writing that. And it's I finally finished it. It's about 12,000 words and I have no idea if or what I'll do with it. But oh I God. that was kind of my, okay, Stalin's not working. Maybe I should go and have a crack at Bono for a while just to freshen up and just throw my brain into a different headspace, which can be helpful. Sometimes yes. if, you're really, if you're really drowning in the plot or the, you know, there was – with Stalin, there was so much. There was, yeah, history. There was wine. There was so many things I had to mm. get my head around. It was really intimidating at times. So, you know, throwing myself off into a ridiculous cartoon sort of story was a good good way to break out of that sometimes. Yes. Um, so what are you working on now? What's your main focus now that this book is out and, and obviously <laughs> getting a lot of attention? Uh, I've always got about five things in my head. Like I've always got – I've got <laughs> – you know, I do have books in my head that have been there now for 10 years that I still haven't started writing because I just still don't feel like it's ready yet to come out. It's really weird. Um, but I've also got a couple. This has opened a few doors for me in, in my brain of like, you know, I know some other amazing stories and I'm like, wow, I wonder if that story, like a st there's one story that I wrote for a newspaper 10 years ago that I'm thinking that could actually be an amazing book if I wrote it the same way with the guy mm. who lived the story. So it's kind of opened up in me that this is a potential path for my writing. I've got, I also, I love writing my novels though. I mean, I've got a detective character that I love, so I'd love to keep him going if I can. So um, it's funny, you know, like no matter how many books you get published, it's no guarantee you'll get published next time out. So mm. I don't, I'm not thinking, you know, I'll write something and then sit back and it will all just roll out into publication. I, I feel like I've now, I'm back at the bottom of the mountain. Here we go again. 
Mm. Okay, and um, the book, as I said, it's it's getting lots and lots of attention, Stalin's Wine Cellar. Um, let's finish up on uh, what would be your top three writing tips to people. And, and actually, let's focus on nonfiction because this book is essentially nonfiction. Um, if there are people who are interested in nonfiction writing or writing long-form nonfiction as opposed to journalism, what would be your top three writing tips for them? <laughs> well, I, I don't consider myself a world expert having done it once, just to be clear. <laughs> well, based on based on your experience with this book. <laughs> uh, I would say treat, even though they're real people, treat them like characters because you are writing a book with characters and the, the reader is going to read it like characters. The, the people who read Stalin's Wine Cellar in all likelihood will never meet any of the people in the book. So it's up to me to make them living, breathing characters who you do feel like you know and you do care for and you do barrack for or you do barrack against or whatever. So, you know, they're characters. You can at some point throw away the real person and write them as a living, breathing, fictional, on-the-page character, not fictional, on-the-page character. Mm. That's one thing. I would say don't try to pack too much into it. Don't don't go into pages and pages of exposition exposition, mm. or don't go into clunky conversations where people tell each other all about their world. It, it's got to feel real. It's got to, it's really got to feel real. Um, mm. One of the most fun things for me and people starting to finally read the book after all this time is that no one can tell the bits that I completely basically added the paint there and what was the real painting before it. So, mm. you know, where I've gone into fiction mode to, to flesh out entire stuff parts of it no one can tell the difference so to me that's a huge um win for me and i think the other thing is you know do the journal in me can't help but say if in doubt stick with the truth if you have to change it because actually the story is not going to work in terms of your story that's one thing but you know when in doubt with this book i i went with the true story i went with what actually happened um Mm. it gives it authenticity it means that john's not out there now trying to say yes this this story happened but actually massive chunks of it didn't um mm. you know although parts of it didn't um but and we we very clearly said i fought hard for based on a true story not a true story because again the journal in me wasn't prepared to say it's a true story when i knew mm. that i had i had written parts of it so you know just yeah don't don't get caught up in it but also yeah where you can be authentic and and you know get interested in the topic really really research it and authenticate it and bring that authenticity to it um I think that's what makes a story like this work, that you actually feel like you're in Tbilisi and you can look around the streets and you can feel that you're in the place. It's, it's super important that it doesn't feel like it's been written from Melbourne, Australia. It mm. feels like you're there. Well, Stalin's Wine Cellar, thank you so much for your time today, Nick. Oh, I really enjoyed it. I love talking about this stuff. So thanks for, thanks for you know, bringing me in. There we go, Nick Place. And um, the, I mean, you know that I love nonfiction and I love creative nonfiction. Um, and uh, just to whet people's appetite, there is a course coming up in creative nonfiction for those of you who are, you know, have got a really interesting story to tell and want to tell it like Nick oh. just has. Mm-hmm. But let's move on to... Uh, what are you doing the in the end of the show? Week? Yes, <laughs> yes. Move on to the end of the show. That's a bit of an anticlimax, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, I have got a very, <laughs> I've got a busy week. So I've got um, several radio interviews this week, and I have um, a little bookshop tour I'm doing. Cool. So I'm going to be going um, yeah. south. 
south to the in the in the so south on the south coast um, yes. on Friday, and then I'm going north on the south coast uh, as far as Wollongong on Monday to visit some bookshops um, oh, and wow. you know sign some books and do some stuff. Um, and yeah, so it's actually quite a busy week. I've got quite a few uh, blog posts, you know, guest posts and things coming out. I have already um, like pre-recorded several podcasts which will be kind of like coming out in the next couple of weeks so I've got a lot of um a lot of stuff going on yeah a lot of stuff so I'll be juggling stuff which is fun and also continuing to chug away with my uh second book in the Maven and Reeve mystery series which is getting there I think I'm nearly I'm nearly done yeah I think we're nearly there it's fantastic I'm, I'm really looking forward to making the big the end announcement on my Facebook page with the writer book with our hashtag um, because I just feel like this one has been oh, an yes. ongoing saga. But um, we're nearly so there. Cool. We're nearly there. But what's going to happen to the poor people who have written along with Al and now Al's finished a book but they haven't? Well, this is just the rule. This is how it goes. I write as long <laughs> as I have. Um, but they will, I think all of them will attest to the fact that they've got a lot more words now than they had yes. when we started out. Um, yes. So even if they haven't finished. And you know that I've got to write something else at some point like soon. Yes. So, yes. Um, you know, I'll do it again. I'm still trying to decide if I'm going to do NaNoWriMo um, in November. Oh, yeah. So oh, that, might be, that might be a thing. Not sure yet. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's always – there's always going to be write something with Al because Al's always writing something, right? So <laughs> anyway, uh, what about you? What are you doing this week? Uh, what am I doing this week? So many things. Uh, one of the things, oh, I'm planning for, I've got this Facebook Live coming up with this incredibly talented author around mid-September. We're going to be broadcasting it. You might know her. Her name is Alison Tate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I forgot about that. This is, you know, this is the weird thing about this whole situation. I like, I've said yes to all this stuff. I've got so many things that I've said yes to and I've written them, you know, faithfully all in my diary, which I never remember to look at um and so I like I'm constantly surprised by thinking that I've got a whole day to write and then discovering I've got four things on that day so. yes <laughs> but no creative conversation I am looking forward to that yes what are, it, what we, are we talking about let's remind me let's talk so about it. What many are we things we'll be talking so uh, about it in mid-September and uh, mm. we'll put the all of the information of course um in the Facebook group if you're not already part of our listener community on Facebook just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. We'll put the information there and I'm already being pinged by people asking me how they can ask their questions to you. So if you have questions for Al, don't worry. I will be starting a thread in that group for you to ask those questions, but don't send them to me like separately because we we need them all in one spot. Yeah. So you um, need to join the podcast community is one of the yes. best places because that's where the notifications will be. That's where we'll put the yes. event. I mean, we'll put it everywhere yeah. because let's face it, that's what we do. Yes. But nonetheless, if yes. you're in the podcast community, you won't miss it, right? Yeah, that's right. So we will. I will be starting a thread in there where you can ask your questions. So just hang on for that, um, so that we can put it all in the same spot, so that just we can I'm ensure that to know what that burning question is. Like, that's yeah, so well, it's I don't know. It's probably but... you know what? It's probably got to do with Procrastipop because oh, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much every question that I'm asked at the moment is all about <gasps> Procrastipop. Oh, so, it's yeah. like the other day I, I opened my phone and it had exploded with all of these DMs on Instagram. 
Instagram and I was thinking, oh my goodness, somebody, so many people want to contact me. But of course, they were all responding to an Instagram story I did of my cat. Yes. And my cat is clearly the most popular thing that, or most interesting thing in my life. Well, it's interesting you say that because I put up a post recently um, with just, you know, Procrasty Pop in all his Mm. glory and it was like, it went nuts. The only post that I have done recently anywhere that has done more than my general Procrasty Pop love (laughs) stuff was on Facebook and I put up a question where I asked people to help me solve a family argument because we were having one about where they stood on Brussels sprouts. Oh, I and know. let me tell you oh that God. the, the entire that. world has an opinion on Brussels sprouts because oh. that that thread I went know. insane. I was it's just going. So insane. clearly, I am now writing a junior fiction novel mm. called Far Out Brussels Sprout. Yes, and it will be all about Brussels sprouts because everybody yes. has a thought about them. So I was about to weigh in. I saw that post and I was about to weigh in and then I saw that I would have been one of hundreds. <laughs> hundreds. There were hundreds of people telling me the best, either the fact that there was no, the only good Brussels sprout was one that was stood on. There was oh that th- that section of town. And then there was the don't steam them. You've got to saute them in butter and bacon. Bacon makes everything uh, better. And then you need yes. garlic. Like, honestly, like I've got more. Uh, things that I could I could do actually instead of the junior fiction I could do a cookbook 101 things to do with Brussels sprouts like I'm yes. I'm ready to go anybody if you're listening out there publishers I can do either of those options for you so get in touch so do you like them I you know I like I actually really like them yes I do I quite like them too I know okay. I do and so like I just I thought maybe four people would laugh at me for even asking the question I did not know <laughs> I was hitting quite the nerve that I hit. Yes. Anyway, yes. social media, what are you going to do, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> if so you want to we'll... ask me a question about Brussels sprouts for the uh, in the creative conversations, I'm ready. Hit me. Fantastic. Um, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram, and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, you'll find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.